will be our heart's desire. Our hearts will never tire of God and God alone. God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives Put the, forgot to put the mic on. Sit and listen to the music. This is not working too good. This is such a skinny tie. All right, there we go. All right, let's take our Bibles today. Turn over to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter one. We're going to read the first five verses. We're going to take our text out of the verses three through five, really. But. Um, I'm going to, over the next few weeks, talk to you about three reasons we know our salvation is secure. And I just want to look over the next couple of weeks this idea of our, our salvation being secured. Uh, I guess if there's an area that, that uh, there, there comes some sense of debate or uh, question in many minds is this idea of whether or not our salvation is forever or not. And, and somebody might say, well, I'm not saying that it's not forever, but I'm saying that you can lose it. Well, then if you can lose it, it wasn't forever. You get where I'm going with this? Okay, I'm I'm not trying to be, you know, divisive, but I do want us to understand biblically when the Bible talks about everlasting life, that's exactly what it is, everlasting. Now, again, I'm not saying that we are going to live properly or do right all along, and I'm not saying that we won't even. I'm just saying that our salvation has nothing to do with you or I and our efforts or abilities. It has everything to do with God's. And so I think it's important that we realize that. And so as I was reading through, uh, you know, just different portions of, my, uh, of the Bible, I say my Bible, but it, it is my Bible, and just like you have yours. And, I, you know, I come across this passage, and this passage is truly powerful to me. It's extremely powerful. When it comes to addressing the issue of eternal life and uh, the fact that we are forever saved, I think this passage is, is so, so I don't know. It's definitive. It's wonderful. So I want to take a few moments today and the next few weeks to kind of address it. And so we're not going to get through the whole portion, but I'm going to kind of give you an introduction and a background of the passage as we move forward. And then uh, we'll look at verse three for just a short few moments. And then we're going to look at verses four and five down the road. And so let's go ahead and have a word of prayer before we even get started. And then we'll, we'll go from there. Father, we come to you. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather today. Lord, I know, Father, that in our hearts and our lives, we want to please you. And Lord, these that have gathered today, I'm sure, have a desire to do that. We don't always know how to do that. And that's why you gave us your word. 
you also, Father, have secured us. And we thank you so much for that. But many times the devil will get in there and cause us to doubt things that will ultimately trip us up, cause us to question things that we shouldn't question and even keep us from moving forward in our Christian lives for fear that we haven't settled some things earlier on. Bless us now, Lord, and may this passage, Father, truly come alive to us. May we be encouraged by it. And Lord, may we be instructed that we might be inspired not only to rest assured in our own lives that we're saved forever, but that we'll have a desire, a longing to see others saved as well. We love you. We desperately need you. In Christ's name, amen. So we see here in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith into salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know about you, but that's a mouthful. And there's a lot that the Lord is trying to teach us here, utilizing his servant Peter. And right off the bat, in the very beginning, we note that it is Peter that is writing. Peter, of course, is is, uh, uh, Andrew's brother. And it would be Andrew, ultimately, that would bring uh, Peter to the Lord. And and ultimately, they would lead the, the business, their thriving fishing business, and they would enter into the ministry and that they would follow the Lord Jesus Christ. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were very close friends with this particular man by the name of Peter. Peter, he had boldly confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that he believed him to be the Christ. And boy, Peter was one of those people that, I mean, he just said what it was on his heart and what was on his mind. And there were times that it got him into trouble, but also there were times that we certainly are grateful for his boldness. And so Peter, he made it very clear that he believed that Jesus Christ was the son of the living God. He had said at one point that he would never, ever deny the Lord. He said, it doesn't matter if everybody else denies you, I will not deny you. Well, of course, we know that the Lord had said, well, Peter, that's not really the case at all. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't be till the cock crew that Peter would ultimately recognize and realize that he had done exactly what he promised he would never do. And there he leaves and he finds his own personal Gethsemane. And there he weeps out according to his sin and begs God for forgiveness for denying him and He's one of those, one of the first ones to finally make it to the tomb even. Peter, of course, him and John make their way a beeline to the tomb after hearing that their Lord had resurrected. And there we find Peter, one of the first to the tomb. He was a very zealous, zealous disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to feed the sheep. We remember that. How uh, lovest thou me, he said to Peter. He said it three times, and finally Peter got frustrated with him. He says, you know that I love you. And he was trying to convey a truth to Peter that ultimately he would grasp and he would go forward and really truly meet the needs of people in their lives. Well, he witnessed the Lord's ascension, of course. Jesus rose from the dead, and now we see him ascending to glory. Peter's there. The angels say to him and to the others that are there that he would return in the same way that he left. Peter was there for that event. Then, of course, there's Pentecost. How can we forget Pentecost? Boy, I mean to tell you, he along with some of the others were baptized and indwelled and filled and anointed by the Holy Ghost that day. 
He would preach a wonderful message and a spirit-filled message and 3,000 would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and added to the church. Peter, the writer of this particular epistle, we see him preaching despite being arrested and beaten. We see him being willing to endure the threats and the misguided the misguided uh, attempts to attack him and his character. And yet he endured it. He put up with it. He got through it. We see Peter traveling through Palestine, preaching the name of Jesus and performing miracle after miracle. He actually raised the sorely missed Dorcas from the dead. Don't laugh at that name, by the way. <laughs> so he said, I have somebody in my family named Dorcas too. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. But anyway... <laughs> Peter could recall his reluctance to go to Caesarea. He would remember that. Of course, that's the Roman capital of Palestine in the time. And there he would go and visit what? A Roman centurion, a Gentile soldier. He went and in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ's leadership. And as a result, we see this particular soldier and his family being saved. Opening the door to the Gentiles for salvation. He had been arrested, he'd been imprisoned, he'd been confined to death, uh, con- uh, had been condemned to death by Herod. And yet, we see that God sent his angel there to gloriously open the iron bars and set him free. But yet, with terrible persecution raging in Rome. And boy, was it ever. And seeing persecution breaking out here and there all around him, you have to imagine that Peter must have been reminded that his martyrdom was sure at hand. That it wouldn't be long before he would be required to give his life on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, after learning much about the Lord, traveling with him, experiencing Christ firsthand, preaching and teaching the ministry after the resurrection of Christ, receiving from the Lord Jesus exactly what he should have received and being given special illumination by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. He has so many truths that he wants to share with the people of God. And so he, like the Apostle Paul himself, writes down the truths that has been forming in his mind for years now. And he begins to share those truths with the people of God. And so we come to the place where we see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is Peter, not Peter who's mama called or daddy, daddy driven. No, this is Peter. We're talking about Peter who is an apostle, which simply means a sent one. And we would, might call him even a missionary today. He was heavenly commissioned. He, 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 he was divinely appointed. Peter wasn't there for no other reason except God had called him into the ministry. God had placed him there. On purpose, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those particular provinces that are being spoken of here, these areas that are being spoken of, we primarily associate them with Paul's ministry, don't we? This area is basically what we would call Asia Minor. So Peter here is going to be ministering through letter to the churches in Asia Minor as a whole. And why would Peter be doing that? 
I mean, if Paul had started those ministries as he traveled, if he had been involved in their lives so closely as he was for a period of time, why is Peter now writing? Well, possibly it could be because after seeing the success of the Roman emperor in persecuting believers, possibly he now recognizes the desperate need of believers throughout Asia Minor who are being persecuted. And he wants to encourage them. He wants to be a blessing to them. And so he writes this letter, and he seeks to encourage them. I'm sure that they would appreciate a personal letter from Peter the Apostle. And notice he addresses, it, he addresses uh, himself to the strangers. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? To the strangers scattered throughout Asia Minor. The word used for strangers describes people who are sojourners in a foreign land or a strange place. It doesn't mean that they were weird They're strangers in the land. They don't belong there necessarily. They don't fit there uh, by nature. They are sojourners. They are simply foreigners in that land. The word scattered uh, is a word generally associated with the Jews and their dispersion. They've been scattered about the whole world. And it usually, normally, would kind of relate to them personally. In this passage, Peter kind of uses it as a word to describe the Christian community now. That believers are being scattered abroad. That believers are now being sent in all directions. And why? Because of persecution. When we take all of that together, the two words help us to identify Peter's audience as believers. Believers that are in Asia Minor, who have recognized the fact that the world is not their home. They've come to the conclusion that they just don't fit. And may I say today that if there's one area that I believe the church lacks and is very, very, very uh, in need of, it's an identification with Christ and the Word of God in the world and the culture in which we live. We have so disassociated with our biblical roots today. Our Christ-likeness is not something that we elevate. It's something that we try to terminate We try to put it down almost. We want to fit in so desperately in the world in which we live that we fail to be what God said we would be, strangers in this land. Why would they need a personal letter from Peter if everything was going well? Why would they need to hear from the the, the preachers and be encouraged that, that, that At some point, Christ would return. Why do they need that if indeed they're not desperate for it? Sadly enough, I don't know that we're really that encouraged by preaching about the return of Christ today. Why? Because we're so comfortable in the place we are. And I'm not saying, listen, like they say, the old adage is one finger pointed at you and three back at me. Boy, we have grown so accustomed and so comfortable in the world we live. But in this day and age, there was persecution taking place. And believers in the Lord Jesus Christ found themselves at the wrong end of that persecution. And boy, I mean to tell you, Peter now is writing a letter to encourage and try to to truly inspire the people of God. They may have settled down alongside the citizens of this world, but they themselves were simply sojourners and pilgrims Scattered far and wide, ultimately reaching the ends of the earth. And you know what? This scattering would be responsible for the furtherance of the gospel, mind you. 
Interestingly enough, if it wouldn't have been for the persecution, if it wouldn't have been for the scattering, the gospel would have remained in Jerusalem. It would never have reached the, the, the distant foreign lands that God intended it to. It would not have reached as far as the east and far west and north and south as God intended. He expected and wanted the whole world to be reached, and yet it would have remained in Jerusalem if it were not for persecution. And now we see the church under attack. Peter writing to these strangers scattered abroad, scattered throughout, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He goes on in verse 2. Again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You know, although it may appear on the onset, that Peter is somehow supporting the doctrinal flaw of Calvinism, it can be certain that he is not. That is not what the passage is teaching. It is not teaching this element of election that Calvinistic tendencies lead to. See, God doesn't choose who will be saved and who will not be saved. He doesn't do that. If we misunderstand the passage, we can come to that conclusion very easily. But see, God never violates his own volition. God woos us, but he does not ravish us. It doesn't provide his creatures with the will of their own, with the power of choice, with the personal accountability for their behavior, and then, on the other hand, act as though they don't have that at all at their disposal. You don't say that you have a right to choose, but then take away your right to choose. God doesn't do that. That's not how God operates. That's not how he functions. Notice again, they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. The the implication is that God can see ahead, that God knows the future, that God can see whether or not you personally will receive and accept his son, Jesus Christ. In the immediate context of the passage, Peter's Words have a tendency to emphasize some things, and it emphasizes this idea that the church today, you and I, are elect strangers. These are elect strangers. They are elect strangers in this Asia Minor area. We're elect strangers in our area today. And what does that mean in a sense? It means that God knew who they were, and he knew where they were. God knows who you are today. God knows where you're at today. God, the God we serve is a personal God. He's not impersonal. God did not one day decide to allow a big bang to take place that he put into motion and then allow the world and the universe to take over. Natural laws to govern at that point. No, he created us six days. Morning and evening were the first day. Morning and evening were the second. Right on through. Let me tell you something. God created all things. He didn't just get the ball rolling and allow evolution to take over. God is a personal God. And God knows where you are at today. And God knows who you are today. And whether you understand that or not, He cares about you where you are. And He cared about these particular believers in Asia Scattered abroad as a result of persecution. Scattered abroad throughout all the distant lands.
says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit. Elect through the sanctification of the Spirit. See, the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart begins with conviction. Have you ever felt the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? You know that presence that says, I am worthless when he convicts of sin. That I am nothing. That I am so wretched and so sinful that God is so perfect and holy. How can I even face him? How could I even think of raising my head before God, causing us to want to just fall face first on the ground? Talking about conviction. Holy Spirit conviction. And that's exactly where the work of the Holy Spirit begins in the heart of a person. And then he moves on to regeneration. And then to sanctification. And ultimately concludes with this element of glorification. See, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all mentioned in Paul's Romans 8.28-30 through 30 passage dealing with so many different things there, but it addresses all three and how that redemptive process included the, the Trinity. It puts us, that process that places us in the family of God includes all three persons of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, God thought it. You say, what do you mean? Well, his wisdom to foresee the need and ultimately plan a way to reconcile us. God the Father thought it. The Spirit wrought it through his convicting presence and power. And finally, the Son bought it through his shed blood and sacrifice on Calvary. So we have God that thought it, the Spirit wrought it, and the Son bought it. And may I say that salvation today, as we understand it, is not complete, nor can it be even attempted without all three of the Trinity being involved. Peter continues and says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter was very familiar with this thing called the Day of Atonement. In the Old Testament, we read about it, we learn about it. And basically what the Day of Atonement was, was it was a day that, that came about once a year. Once a year, the high priest was to atone for the sins of the people. First of all, he would bathe and put on special garments. Not, not everyday garments, special garments. So he would bathe there, and then he would place those special garments on. Then he sacrificed a bull for the sin offering for himself and for his family. He would then enter into the Holy of Holies, taking the blood of that bull and sprinkling it upon the mercy seat, making atonement on behalf of the people of Israel. He would shed, sprinkle that blood on that, that, that mercy seat and, and that blood would cover sins until the next day of atonement a year later. But it never did away with all sin Boy, that, that day did not come till Jesus Christ came and there he shed his precious blood on Calvary and there made his way to the heavenly throne and sprinkled his blood upon the heavenly mercy seat. Then sin was dealt with for good. 
And so Peter, being very familiar with his Day of Atonement, I believe somehow is speaking it, sharing it, in attempt to remind us that the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is what atones for our sins and what secures our salvation. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, grace to you, unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace. What a wonderful word that word is. Grace. We often define it as unmerited favor, do we not? And truly that is the case. But what it does imply and what it should entail here in the passage is that it, was, it had to do with God's abundant provision for the people. His grace. Providing what they did not deserve. Providing what you and I don't deserve. Sadly enough, we believe that God owes us too often, don't we? I mean, we go through life and we somehow feel that we did God a favor by receiving and accepting Him. I know that we may not verbalize that, but we live that so many times. Somehow we give the world and ourselves and God the impression that, well, I mean, we're thankful, but not that thankful. And that all stems from this idea of grace, unmerited favor. God gave us His grace. God extended His grace to you and I when we failed. To, we did not deserve it. God gave us His salvation. We did not deserve it. God provides us with all the good things that we possess today. We don't deserve it. If we would truly understand that they really are from a God that loves us and that they are given to us in spite of us, we would have a different attitude many times, I believe. So this grace is being used here in the passage was reflecting on God's abundant provision for the people and basically telling these believers that were scattered, these believers that were being persecuted, come what may, God is with you. His love and his compassion overflow toward you, is what Peter's trying to say. That you can draw on His boundless resources. His grace is yours. And may I say today that you and I have the same privilege today. That God's grace is extended to you and I. His abundant provision is there for you. And it's there for me. And come what may, God is there for us. I don't know about you, but I believe we have it a lot easier than they did. Can you imagine going to sleep at night with a bounty on your head, not just hoping that someone didn't break in and take you or, and, and haul you off to jail or murder you and your family or do horrible things to them, but to know that you are being hunted. Not just randomly will I be the one, but we're being hunted because of our faith in Christ. Persecuted mercilessly. And yet Peter says to them, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Peace? Peace? See, that was God's abiding protection for them. The peace of God would strengthen their hearts. Come what may, again, they knew that God's peace in their heart existed. See, peace is not something that you may find around you. It is something you must find in you. Too many times we're looking for the peace outside. And we've talked about that a little bit with our, our particular series, To Do the Simple Well, our theme this year. 
making things simple so that we can do the simple well, that when we get rid of the clutter, when we remove all the voices and take away some of the options, it becomes less cluttered, which brings a peace to us, yes. But may I say that there are times in our lives, no matter what we do, that we will be under attack. That the peace that we need is the peace that Jesus Christ alone can bring. That it is only found in His peace, His grace. These believers, again, scattered. Scattered. Needed that peace. They needed that grace. And God knew where they were, and He knew who they were, even in the midst of it all. And so we arrive at our text. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith and to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this particular verse, we're going to focus our attention on this idea, a glorious resurrection. Boy, that glorious resurrection ultimately helps us to know that our salvation is secure. It aids us in understanding that. It puts a stamp on our salvation and says it's settled. Scripture points out that the believer's great hope is found in anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us over in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. When you think about the people that were scattered abroad, these particular believers, the worst that Nero and his henchmen could do was take their lives. That was the worst they could do. Remove them from this earth, torture them and kill them. But the grave could not hold them. Don't you understand that is our true hope? That we will not die and remain dead, we will rise again? That we will be resurrected as well? See, hope is always, hope always has the future in mind. Anytime you think of the word hope, it has something to do with the future. The believer anticipates a glorious and and certain resurrection at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have that hope. We see beyond today. We see tomorrow. We see the future through the word of God and through the eyes of Christ. God promised never to leave or forsake us in this life. He promised to provide and sustain us along our journey. But above and beyond these temporal mercies. That's what Peter's really addressing. What goes beyond that? He says to them that are scattered, he says, listen, God's grace is with you. God's mercy is with you. He'll provide for you, protect you, meet your need. You'll have a supernatural peace within But I want you to understand it goes beyond that, he says. Your hope isn't just in a present Christ. It's in the future too. He says here in the passage, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy. 
abundant. He hath begotten us. That abundant mercy guarantees that come what may, no matter what happens, that we're going to overcome in the last times, the last days. We're going to enter into His glories. We're going to make it to heaven. We're going to be in that place. Not only that, but that abundant mercy, as we said, begotten us as well, hath begotten us. You know, the new birth is really the the real basis of the whole matter. It's the real crux of the matter. That's what he's really beginning to address here is, is this, the new birth. And God saw the fall of Adam. He understood that. Remember, he has foreknowledge again. He already knew when he created Adam that Adam would fall. I know somebody said, so he created him to fall? No, but he created him understanding and knowing in his foreknowledge that he would fall. And he also knew that he would ruin and wreck the human race as a result. But he also knew what he was going to do about it. See, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decided that they would act in creation, they also knew that that in time, sooner or later, the time would come when they would have to act in redemption. That what they had lost as a result of the fall of Adam, they want to regain again. They saw that ahead of time. They knew that they had to make, take steps to get that accomplished. Again, the Godhead was not surprised by the fall of Adam, but foresaw it. And so God devised a plan of redemption. And that plan of redemption would also include re, 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 regeneration. Because regeneration restores what was lost in Adam. What Adam was is what we can become now. We can be restored back to us. What was in the garden, that fellowship, that relationship that was lost because of sin can be regained again. And he's beginning to address it. He's touching on it. He's speaking about this basically. So when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today, you are regenerated. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. The Holy Spirit takes up permanent residency in your spirit compartment. The Holy Spirit inhabits you, lives in you, indwells in you. And you know what? When that finally takes place, and hear me out well, when that finally happens, then and only then do you as a man, woman, boy or girl become everything that God intended you to be. It is not until you are inhabited by God that you are what God intended you to be. You are incomplete without Him in your life. And you know, the world runs around trying to fill a void that cannot be filled because the only one that can fill that void is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so we we aimlessly go about life trying to somehow meet a need that exists. Could it be this or that? Or maybe I just need a new relationship or I need something else. Maybe a new car, a new house. Maybe I need a new job or something to have some kind of hope in this life for. Look forward to something. That'll fill the void. No, Jesus Christ and only him can meet that void in your life. Can fill that void. See, your hope in mine as believers in Christ is, a, is, is something that is very substantial. And you say, how is that? I'll tell you why. Because it is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
That's why it's so substantial. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. The fact that he lives today after he was placed on a cross and died proves that we too will live. I want you to look at Matthew very quickly as we close today. Matthew 27. I want you to look there and then I'm going to read a passage out of Corinthians. But notice Matthew chapter 27, verse 52 and 53. Look what happened back in Jesus' day. We note Calvary, the death of Jesus Christ. But notice what transpired and took place that day as well. Notice Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53. When Jesus Christ died, he rose again. But may I say, he didn't just rise again so that he rose. He rose so that others could too. He died for you and me, and he rose again to prove that he had power over the grave. Notice the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Notice again, he resurrects, but he brings others with him. Notice those Old Testament saints that were down in that paradise compartment. Luke 16. They come forth out of the grave, I don't know about you, but if he can raise them from the dead, he can raise me from the dead. If he can raise them that were placed in a tomb and there their bones had, and flesh had already rotted and turned to dust, he can bring me out of that grave too. And the only reason I know he can do it is because he rose again. His power to resurrect and come forth out of the grave ensures and guarantees that I too will come forth out of that grave, that you too will come forth out of that grave. Jesus rose from the dead. That's why the Apostle Peter could be so confident. Our triumphant exit from the grave is guaranteed by his exit. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, I'll read it. You're welcome to turn, but I'm going to read it now. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, the Apostle Paul writing here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. That means they've died. After that, He was seen of James, and then of the apostles, and last of all, was seen of me also as one born out of due time. The Apostle Paul, again, speaking and, and sharing the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and emphatically stating that he wasn't the only one that saw him, but that many saw him, as many as 500 at one time. Old psychologists can dismiss it. Some can say it was an emotional experience. Others can somehow come to their own conclusions as to what they saw and what they really didn't see. But let me tell you something. According to the Bible today, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, so will I. And so will you one day. We ask ourselves, well, what's, how can I know that when I'm saved, once I'm born again, that I'm saved forever? Because Jesus Christ died and was buried. And he said, if I rose, you will too. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And once you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are secure in Christ today. Again, his resurrection assures that you will rise from the dead as well. And it guarantees that every believer will have victory over the grave. 
You say, but you don't know how I'm living right now. I don't need to know how you're living. You better share that with him. And you get that right because, listen, if you start to really realize and, 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 and grasp this concept that God loves you unconditionally and that he saved you by his grace and his mercy and that you are his child forever and ever and ever, it ought to make you want to live for Jesus Christ instead of live for the flesh and live for the world. It ought to cause you to be in, empowered and inspired to do the things of Christ his way. Show me a believer that's not living for Christ. I'll show you someone that is not thankful or grateful for what he has done. Or I'll show you somebody that has no idea what he has done outside of the fact that he's indwelt them. My friend, let me tell you, if you don't realize this, my friend, you need to learn these truths. And you learn that by being faithful in the house of God. You learn that by getting into your Bible as well. You learn that by growing in Christ. And you do that by allowing others to help you in that process. And God gave the local church for that reason. You need to be in God's house, not just Sunday morning, but Sunday night and Wednesday night. You need every time you can to learn about Jesus Christ and to grow in the things of Christ. We are living in a generation and a day in which the, the devil is reigning supreme, so to speak, over this world. He is the God of this world, little g God, according to 2 Corinthians. But my friend, there's a big g God in heaven that loved you enough to die for you. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And if you'll receive and accept him, you too will rise again. He loved you that much. And because of that great love, you ought to love him. It says we love him because he first loved us. And not only love him, but the Bible says if you love me, keep my commandments. It ought to inspire us and motivate us to obey the Lord. Sure, we're going to trip up, stumble and fall in this old wicked flesh. But we do not use the flesh as an excuse. Because we are filled with the Spirit of God, or at least he indwells us. May God help us today. The next time the devil tries to convince you that you're lost, that you've sinned too much, that you're no longer possibly part of the family, that you've somehow tripped out of the love and the grace of God, my friend, you just remind him of the resurrected Christ. You tell him, wait, if Jesus rose from the dead, he promised to raise me. And he did raise from the dead. He rose from the dead. And today you and I will raise too. We'll rise. If you're lost today without Christ, there is a void in your heart that nothing or no one can fill. You are incomplete today without Jesus. I'm not offering Christ as a solution to every one of your problems because that's not what he is. He is our God, our Savior, and our Lord. And we ought to receive and accept him because he deserves that. He loves you so much that he died for you. He loves you so much that he made sure a preacher that's half bald and could never, never, ever get through the National Football Combine as a quarterback because he's too short. He loved you so much that he put me on this platform today to tell you that Jesus loves you and died for you. Amen. The most important news you could ever receive is that there's a hope for you today. Amen. And that hope, as we said, is out there in the future. But today you can gain it and have the hope that you need the rest of your days and into eternity. It begins with a decision to trust and receive the Lord, to put him in your life, 
and say, hey, you will be my life because you deserve that. Don't dismiss him today. Don't neglect him today. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? My friend, we can't escape the punishment of sin except it be for the sacrifice of Jesus, the precious blood of Christ. Allow that blood to be applied to your life today if you haven't already trusted him. And if you're a child of God today, man, hold on to your salvation and hold on to your hope. Live your life for Christ. Put away worldly things and allow him to reign supreme in your life today. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for your love, your grace and mercy. And we just ask that you'd speak to our hearts today again. Even as we close this preaching portion, may you help us in this time of invitation. We need you. We love you. We'll thank you for what you're going to do. Lord, if there's any in this room that are lost without Christ, may they settle their soul salvation even now. May they just slip out of their seat, come to the front, grab one of these young men up front. And if they're a lady, you'll have a lady show them from the word of God how they can be saved with a guy, a guy. But Lord, one way or another, they need to see your precious promises and receive you as Savior and Lord today. And for the believer, may we, Father, truly evaluate our own lives and ask ourselves, is there anything that doesn't belong? After everything he's done for me, would there be anything I would not do for him? Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand.